So tonight we're continuing a series on some of the basic building blocks of the Christian faith, and our topic for tonight is misery. The exits are right back there if you just don't even want to hear this sermon tonight. Um, I hesitated a little bit to really focus on this topic because it's not the most exciting topic in the world, but it is a reality of life in this world. There is a lot of misery in this world. And one of the deep realities, one of the great comforts of the Christian faith is that it equips us even to deal with the hardest things that we face in this world. And so it's important for us as Christians to talk about even some of the hard things, even some of the miserable things, because through the misery, the good news of Christ comes to shine even more clearly for us. Tonight we're going to read from Romans chapter 3 from verse 9 to verse 20. This is God's word for us tonight. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Imagine with me tonight a fleet or a convoy of ships sailing across the ocean. This often happened in World War II when America was sending supplies across the Atlantic Ocean to England. And sometimes there would be huge numbers of ships sailing together. So let's say 30, 40, 50 ships all sailing together in formation. But a number of these ships are in terrible condition. Their engines are undependable. Their guidance systems are haywire. They're held, held together by duct tape and bailing wire. And some of the other ships are in better shape mechanically, but their crews aren't all that responsible. They spend as much time as they can drinking, sleeping, playing cards. Every now and then they pay some attention to what's going on with the ship, but most of the time they just don't care. And between the mechanical problems of some ships and the irresponsibility of other ships' crews, there are all kinds of collisions. All the time these ships are running into each other. And of course you could guess after a collision or two, the ships start to have more problems. The rudders get jammed, pieces, falls off, pieces fall off, their engines need constant repairs, they're always fixing up leaks. And as these problems get worse, the ships get harder and harder to steer. So there get to be more and more collisions. And then as this convoy continues on, a couple enemy submarines find them, and all of a sudden there are torpedoes coming in. A torpedo or two comes from that direction, the submarines disappear and attack from another direction. And finally, a great big storm blows in, and there's wind and waves and all kinds of problems. The sea is pushing one direction, the wind is surging another, and the ships just can't make any headway. Now, any one of those problems would make for a pretty rough voyage, 
but the combination is terrible. Mechanical and personnel problems, ship-on-ship collisions, enemy attacks, natural disasters. What a miserable convoy that would be. And the story of that convoy is actually the story of our lives. We have things inside us that don't work quite right. We make poor choices. Other people keep smashing into us with their problems and their challenges. The world, the flesh, and the devil keep attacking us. And then there are things that go wrong that we can't put any reason behind. It just happens. And it makes our lives even harder. Life is miserable on so many levels. So we'll spend some time tonight unpacking some different ways that life is miserable. We'll talk about how life is miserable because it's full of disappointments. And life is miserable because it's broken. And life is miserable, finally, because we're guilty. So first, life is miserable because it's full of disappointments. Life disappoints us in so many ways. Sometimes we're miserable because we want things that we just can't have. We want something and we don't get it. Some of us live in misery because we wanted a particular career and at some point, instead of the career arc pointing up, it just stalled. And so we're stuck. Or maybe we wanted certain things for our kids. We wanted our kids to make certain choices and live in a certain way, and they just didn't. And so we have to live with deep disappointments and struggles that go on and on. Or we never found a spouse, or our spouse was just never, never able to support us as we've always wanted. Or our health gives out along the way. We can't do what we always wanted to do. Some of us have really specific things that we can point to in our lives and say, I wanted that, and I never got it. And some of us just live with a sense that, you know, life has just never had the shape that I wanted it to have. Some of us are miserable because we don't get what we want. And then some of us are actually miserable because we do get what we want. Someone might study really, really hard and get all the good grades and all the good test scores, and then they realize that none of that really means anything. People study for years and years and years to be lawyers and doctors, and then some people get a year or two into that, and they realize, hey, I hate this job. Why did I do this? Some of us dream of being parents for a long, long time, and then the baby finally comes along, and... Then after a few months of sleepless nights and stinky diapers and someone always screaming at us for no reason that we can figure out, we realize maybe this isn't quite as fulfilling as we thought it would be. Or we finally get to our retirement date and then after a month or two we realize it's actually pretty boring and we wish we could just go back to work. Life can be so disappointing. There are so many times that we don't get what we want or we get what we want and it still leaves us miserable. Life disappointments leave us miserable. But what's even worse is the times that we experience the brokenness of life. So often we're miserable because this world is broken. Sometimes we have things inside us that just drive us in the wrong direction. We just can't work right. And so we struggle with anger or with depression or with acute anxiety or with poor self-esteem We have these things about ourselves that we didn't choose, that we can't control, and they make us 
miserable. For some of us, we're in the midst of addictions to alcohol, to entertainment, to pornography, to work even. There's all kinds of things that drive us and get our lives bent around, and somehow we can't get away from them. Or other people hurt us. Bullies on the playground knock us down. Family members belittle us, or they ignore us, or they walk out on us, and it hurts. Or things just go wrong in this world. This hit me most clearly last week with Jack Heerts passing away last Sunday and talking with the family and doing the funeral this week. This is a seemingly very healthy man, 64, loved his family, very involved in the church, tremendously good at his job, and then he's just gone because life is broken. We have things that are wrong inside us, things that often we didn't choose. We make poor choices and they affect us for the rest of our lives. Other people's choices affect us. And sometimes things just go wrong. And it doesn't end. Day after day, week after week, year after year, life in this world is just hard. And we like to pretend that everything is okay. We like to think that life is good. But that pretending can only last so long before we get shipwrecked. Life is broken. And we can't fix it. Now I suspect it's pretty easy for us to say, yeah, we can be miserable because life has its disappointments. And I think it's pretty easy for us to feel how we can be miserable because things go wrong in this world. But if we dig back behind that, if we dig into the reason that things are wrong in this world, suddenly it gets to be, gets to be a little bit of a tougher discussion because all of that ultimately gets back to sin. And so we finally tonight have to admit that we're guilty because, or we're miserable because we're guilty. We're miserable because we're guilty. We do wrong things. We're wrong people. We're sinful. We are full of sin. And that lies at the root of much of our misery. Romans 3 tells us that we're all sinful. It doesn't say we're all equally bad, but it does say that we are all equally on the wrong side of the law. In Adam, all of us were plunged and dragged deep into sin. And in our own lives, all of us have chosen over and over and over again to embrace sin. And so we're all under the power of sin. The text that we read for tonight gives us a long list of ways that people are sinful. It's certainly not an exhaustive list, but it probably hits all of us somewhere. The big point there in verses 9 and 10 is that everyone, everyone is under the power of sin. No one is righteous, not even one. And then to bring that, whole, that point home, Romans 3 verses 10 to 18 gives us sin after sin after sin after sin. And most of those verses are actually quotations from Old Testament texts. And they give us a pretty good list of ways that people accumulate guilt. So let's run through that list from Romans a minute. First, we're legally guilty and condemned. No one is righteous. And second, our minds are darkened. There is no one who understands. Third, our motives have gone bad. There is no one who seeks God. Fourth, our wills are corrupted. All have turned away and become worthless. 
Fifth, our tongues become wicked. Their throats are open graves and their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And sixth, our relationships go bad. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And finally, our relationship to God is broken. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we could dig more into each of those types of sins tonight, but the important thing isn't the list or the specific sins so much as it is the point that all of us are guilty. All of us in one way or another, and many of us in many, many ways, have fallen short. There is no one righteous, not even one. And that is a really, really, really hard point for us to accept. And even if we get it up here, even if we read these verses from Romans and we say, yeah, yeah, that describes me, in our hearts, at the gut level, often we don't really have that sense that we are guilty. And I think part of that's the culture we live in. Part of it is that we live in a culture that wants us to be okay, that wants people to be independent and productive. And I think sometimes that means we overinflate people's self-perception and sort of let the air out of any sense of guilt they have. But it's not just our culture. People have always wanted to dodge guilt. People have always wanted to discount or explain away or minimize the wrong things that they do. We don't like to admit that we're guilty. It's not fun. But even if we don't admit it, our guilt makes us miserable. We can pack our guilt down and pretend it's not there, but it bubbles back up. We can ignore our guilt, but then it twists us and it twists our lives into knots. Deep, deep down, deep, deep down, most people know there's something wrong with them. Some people have some particular thing they really regret or something they wish they could walk away from but can't. And other people just live with this sense that things just aren't quite right, that they just aren't quite good enough somehow. And one of the functions of God's law is to take that vague sense that things aren't right or to take that sense that this one thing is wrong and to put the reality of our guilt right in front of us. The law comes and it says clearly to us, you are guilty and you will be held accountable. We'd all like to somehow dodge and squirm and get out from under the law, but God's law gets hold of us and it holds us tight. Verse 19 in Romans 3 tells us the law speaks to those under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and so that the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now in the Romans, Roman courts at the time that this book was written, a defendant would have the opportunity to speak for themselves and when they were finished, they would put their hand over their mouth. And that was the symbol to say, I have spoken my defense, I have said everything I can about my innocence, and I am finished. I am finished speaking. But sometimes the defendant would be talking along and a court official would start to smack them on the mouth over and over again. And that was a signal that the defendant should stop running their mouths. Generally, that happened when it was obvious to everybody in the courtroom and getting more and more obvious that the defendant was guilty. And so the official would be saying to them, just stop lying. Stop wiggling, stop squirming, stop making stuff up, stop digging yourself in deeper. You are guilty, and everybody knows it. 
When verse 19 says that, that's the image it wants us to see. A defendant who is so obviously guilty, so blatantly guilty, that there is just nothing left to say. And that's where Romans puts all of humanity. Standing in front of the judge, obviously guilty, with nothing left to say. Just waiting to be sentenced. And that's a miserable, miserable place to be. That's where the law gets us. The law tells us that we're in the wrong. It tells us to be quiet and stop trying to squirm away and just take the punishment. The law by itself shows us our misery, but it doesn't really give us anywhere to go from there. I've intentionally spent a lot of time talking tonight about different ways that our lives are miserable. To be honest with you, I don't particularly enjoy doing that. This isn't my favorite part of preaching. But I do think it's important for us to have these realities in front of us. Especially here where our lives are so often so good and so easy, we wriggle away. We pretend that misery is something that happens to other people. We cover over our guilt. We ignore the brokenness in our lives. We sweep it all under the cover, we keep under the carpet, we keep it under the table. We try to ignore the reality of misery in this world. And if we could do that, wouldn't that be wonderful? If we could just sweep misery away and be done with it, that'd be great. But we can't. Life is full of disappointments. Life is broken. We are guilty. And so we need to do something. We need to do something about our misery. But we can't. Life is miserable, and there is nothing we can do about it. And if we don't feel the power of that truth, if we don't feel the reality of that unpleasant truth, then maybe we haven't yet fully grasped how great the good news of Jesus is. Because that's where we go next. When we're miserable, we don't just wallow, we don't just throw up our hands and say, well, this is just life. And we don't just pretend that it's not there. We don't just pretend that everything's okay and say, life is great. There's nothing wrong. What we do is we look reality in all the hard things in the face and we say, yes, this is hard. But we have hope. And when we turn to Jesus, Jesus brings us hope, healing, and salvation. Jesus brings us hope, healing, and salvation. The classic television show MASH is a comedy about a medical unit during, World, during the Korean War. And in one episode, Klinger, who was one of the show's main characters, was accused of being in the middle of this ring of massive thefts. He's the company clerk for the MASH unit, and through a series of circumstances, he is a wheeler dealer, he's always a little bit in a gray area, but through a series of circumstances, it comes to look like he's in the middle of this huge criminal ring. So he's court-martialed before a military court. And one of the doctors at the MASH unit offers to defend him, good old Dr. Winchester. But he's a terrible lawyer. His closing argument to the court is basically, my family's never lost a criminal case. Don't convict the defendant. Not terribly compelling, you could guess. By the end of the trial, and the trial had just gone from bad to worse for Klinger, by the end, he knows he's going to get convicted. 
So when the panel of judges steps out for what's sure to be a very short deliberation, Klinger leans over and he yells to the prosecutor, who is a very sharp young army lawyer, Hey! Hey, you! Hey, you! And the prosecutor ignores him for a little bit, but then finally looks over, and he's expecting Klinger probably to curse him out or yell at him or something. And Klinger says, Hey! You! Can you handle my appeal? Can you handle my appeal? Klinger knows what the verdict is going to be. He isn't even worried about that anymore. He's moving on to who can help him get out of this guilty verdict. He knows what's going to happen. And the prosecutor, as you might guess, law school didn't really prepare him for this. He's never expected to have the defendant tell him at the prosecutor they wanted to hire him. So he just sort of shuffles papers and looks down and tries to ignore this guy who keeps yelling, hey, can you handle my appeal? Defendants aren't supposed to try to hire prosecutors, right? Maybe in Chicago, but at least it's not supposed to work that way. And as the show unfolds, some of the other doctors from the unit catch the real thief, and they drag him into the courtroom before Klinger gets convicted, and he's released, and, you know, it all works out for him. Someone else took on his troubles and dealt with them. And that's what we need. We experience so much misery in our lives. And unlike Klinger, we really are guilty. When we're sitting there in front of the tribunal waiting for the verdict to come down, we deserve the guilty verdict. And if we're going to get out of it, we need someone to come and help us. And even though we stand guilty before God's law, even though there's nothing we can say, God himself comes and he helps us. We have no right to demand, we have no right even to ask for God to help us. But God chooses to save us anyway. That list of sins in Romans chapter 3, as I said before, is a list of Old Testament quotations. And those quotations obviously are condemnations of people. They're different ways of saying, you people are terrible and guilty and wrong before God. But if you dig back into those texts in their context, usually the condemnation shows up along with promises. Usually the text condemns people and then says something about how God is gracious and about how God will rescue people from evil and sometimes about how even God will rescue evil people. Jesus rescues us from our misery. And let's talk tonight about three particular ways that Jesus does that. First, Jesus brings us hope. Jesus gives us hope in the middle of life's disappointments. We don't always get what we want. When we do get what we want, often we don't like it as much as we thought we would. So often we're empty and disappointed in this world. But Jesus gives us a hope that will last for more than just a little while. Life is so often disappointing. Our hearts can't rest in anything that we get hold of in this world. But in Jesus, our hearts can rest forever. Jesus gives us a hope that will not disappoint. He gives us promises that he will fulfill. And God's promises, the hope that he gives us, are deep and wide enough to fulfill the deepest, most desperate longings of all of our hearts. And when we experience brokenness, Jesus brings us healing and comfort. Sometimes the Lord brings deep, astonishing, amazing healing in our lives. We go through a health scare and everything works out okay. And doctors start using terms like 
it's miraculous. Or a relationship that we thought was broken beyond repair somehow is reconciled. Or we finally find the courage and the endurance we need to admit our addictions and to work toward overcoming them. There are times that God brings amazing healing in our lives right now. And then there are also times that God gives us the comfort to endure our suffering. Maybe even more often than he brings healing, God gives us comfort to endure. In Christ, we have the resources that we need to find comfort even when our lives get broken up and twisted around. And finally, Jesus brings us salvation. Jesus pays for our sins. When we stood guilty before the only judge that really counts, Jesus took on our guilty verdict, and he took on our punishment. When we're miserable in our guilt, Jesus pays for our sins, and he saves us from them. He makes us right. In our misery, we can turn to Jesus, and in him we find everything that we need. In Jesus, we find everything that we need. Jesus gives us hope. Jesus gives us healing. Jesus gives us salvation. Praise be to him, our Lord and Savior.